So um, well, welcome back, everyone, and Happy New Year. I'm really happy to see everyone back at our Critical Care Grand Rounds. And it is my distinct pleasure to introduce as our first speaker for the 2023 year, um, Dr. David Hager. Um, so Dr. Hager is a pulmonary and critical care doctor across town at Johns Hopkins. Um, he's done uh, most of his training there at Hopkins, but he got his MD at Cornell, did his residency at Hopkins, and then his fellowship at Hopkins. Um, he is their medical ICU director, but also spent a lot of his time um, thinking about studying and, and 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 working in and around the space of intermediate care. Um, so it's my pleasure to have him here today talking about a better understanding of intermediate care. Um, Dr. Hager, thank you for ringing in the new year with us. Great. Well, I hadn't realized it'd be the first talk of the year, but that, wow, what a, what a big deal. Can you guys hear me okay? <laughs> yeah. Great. And um, this should be very, um, if people have questions or want to interrupt along the way, please um, don't hesitate to do so. Um, and, and Andy, if something pops up in, up in the chat that I'm not paying attention to, if you can sort of call my attention to it or read it out, um, this should be, if this is interactive, that's great. Um, when I got hired by Hopkins, when I got recruited in 2006, 2007, they said I could become the, the MICU director. And then when they gave me the offer letter, which is, you know, given to me in May of 2007, right before I start in 2007, um, it actually said I'd be the, the director of the MPCU, our step-down unit. Um, <clears throat> So uh, I was a little disappointed at the time, a little caught off guard, but um, it turns out this is uh, this became an interest of mine over the years. And um, uh, the the more I dug into it, uh, the more interested I got. Um, as a side note, they they made good on their promise 14 years later uh, to make me MICU director, but um, let's go and talk some more about uh, intermediate care. So uh, no financial disclosures, and I will not reference any sort of unlabeled or unapproved uses of drugs or other product. Um, and here are the objectives. These are pretty similar to what I, I sent you, Andy. If we need to edit that form, I can do it. But um, I'm going to define intermediate care, um, sort of talk a little bit about why we would consider creating an intermediate care unit if have one. Um, what are the origins of intermediate care? Do we think that intermediate care, having that level of care helps the ICU population? And then what do we know about the outcomes of patients who are admitted to, to the ICU or to the IMCU? And uh, and then a few comments on, on next steps. So here's a, a definition um, of what intermediate care is. It's a level of care that accommodates patients whose needs don't require the intensive human and technical resources of an ICU but exceed what is really feasible at the ward level or what is sometimes described as acute care level bed. Um, in general, the nurse to patient ratio in this country is one to three. And I think that's true in other countries as well, although there is some variation. Uh, the UK has a level of care um, called HDU or high dependency units, and their, their nurse to patient ratio is one to two. Um, there's a few places that, that, that use a ratio of one to four. But in general, this is a place where they can do more frequent vitals and treatments and lab assessments than um, you'd be able to do on a floor, but not as often as you need in the ICU. Most of them have continuous pulse oximetry and nearly all of them have continuous telemetry. Um, other names, step-down unit, transitional care unit, progressive care unit, high dependency unit, um, lots of different names. Um, intermediate care, which is what I, the, the publications we've done, we've referred to it as intermediate care unit. But um, if you Google that, you'll come across um, a different entity, which is a place people go to after hospital before they go somewhere else. Um, some people have been calling that intermediate care. So there's a little bit of confusion out there. Um, but in the hospital setting, the hospital IMCU, um, patients can come from all, all different places, the ward, the ICU, ED, 
OR or the PEC. Um, so I'm, I'm going to give a couple of cases um, at the beginning of, of patients who are admitted to our IMCU um, over the years. This is a 57-year-old man with acute on chronic renal failure in the setting of profuse diarrhea. In the ED, he was hemodynamically stable. You can see a very high BU and creatinine ratio, low bicarb and a low pH. Um, and he looked okay. And this guy has started on a bicarb drip and admitted for basically close monitoring. It's a scary pH, but um, everything looked pretty good, uh, or at least the trajectory of this was pretty predictable. I think that's an important element. The second case is a 62-year-old woman with peripheral vascular disease who had had an AKA about 15 days ago, had some comorbidities, and she shows up to the ED with rigors and altered mental status. The vital signs you see there, which are most notable for one, a heart rate of 124 and maybe borderline blood pressure in a patient who carries a diagnosis of hypertension. Her kidney function looks okay. She's got a leukocytosis, has not bumped her lactose has an acceptable pH, given antibiotics. Um, and then she's given a lot of volume um, over a long period of time. And, and this patient was was actually also admitted to the intermediate care unit. So we'll come back to those at the end. Um, <clears throat> so asking this question, do we need a level of care between the ICU and the ward? And, and what are the origins of intermediate care? Well, critical care, um, as, as you all know, is, is a life-saving resource. It's a incredibly expensive and it is frequently oversubscribed. We we often are in, you know, in a bed crunch. We have more patients in the ED and not enough beds in the ICU and, and people get frustrated and amped up because they're taking care of critically ill patients in places where they'd rather not. And we know that outcomes are better if patients are uh, in the ICU during the time that they're critically ill. Um, but there's also a group of patients that historically have been admitted to the ICUs really for close monitoring. Um, this is a study from the Blue Journal from 2012. Um, and, and what this looked at was the outcome of patients who were thought to be appropriate for ICU admission. So all, to be in the study, the, the assessing provider had to think, this is somebody I would put in the ICU if I had a bed. Um, if there was a bed, they were admitted immediately. And if there was not a bed, they were not immediately. And you can see that those curves separate pretty quickly and that survival is better for those patients who are admitted immediately. Um, so this sort of speaks a little bit to bed availability and, and why that's important. That lower curve is, is made up of people who were later admitted to the ICU when reconsult was, was done, patients who died and patients who got better. But if you if you compress those together, you can see that admitted immediately is, is better. And there are a few studies that show this, and it's not a surprise. Um, so the, the Zoom field is getting in the way of some of my headings here. I, hopefully they're not in your way. I'm going to move mine. Um, so origins of intermediate care. Um, this is a study by a group. I think it was actually uh, George Washington Medical Center down in D.C. Um, this was uh, early, the group that um, developed the Apache scoring system years ago. So this is 1983. And what they did was they... Um, took a group of almost 1,200 patients um, and used them to see if they could predict a group that was really just there for close monitoring. So of the 1,148 consecutive admissions to their ICU, um, 635 received a quote-unquote active treatment in the first 16 hours. And active treatment generally has face validity. If you go to the paper and look at it, it's stuff like vasopressors, mechanical ventilation, continuous renal replacement therapy, um, things that I think in most places we are generally limiting to the ICU. Um, there is an additional 513 patients who were really just monitored in the first 16 hours. There were no none of these active interventions. And I think one 
one thing that um, you know I, I see here is that that that's like half the population. Now this is a long time ago, but that's half the population in that ICU was folks who were just getting monitored closely. Um, and then they did one of these um, uh, validation uh, development validation analyses where they took that that group of 513, some of some of which were. <laughs> Um, admitted in the first part of a year, and some were admitted in the second part of the year. But but the long and short of it is that they they took a, a, a sample from that 513 that did not require active therapy in the first 16 hours, and they developed a predictive model um, with the outcome being needing active intervention prior to ICU discharge. And they found that they could pre- predict um, pretty well um, patients who had a less than five percent risk of an active treatment during their ICU stay, um, and that ended up being, I think, about 10% of their population um, and uh, with, with a very um, good negative predictive value. So this basically, you know, and I, I said orange, and I know this is like 40 years old. This literally is 40 years old now. Um, uh, but but as I go back and, and look at the motivation for thinking about this level of care, this, this was sort of the start of it. Um, and I think it's true that an IMC can decompress the ICU. Um, this is, a, a again, the, one of the challenges with intermediate care literature is that there, there's a few, but one is that um, I think people got interested in this in the 80s and early 90s and really weren't sure what to do with it after that. And so um, it, it hasn't been very well studied. But here's a study from Cook County Hospital in the late 1980s. And they looked at outcomes before and after opening a 12-bed IMCU in their hospital. Now, at this time, they had a nurse-to-patient ratio of one to four. Um, they had continuous telemetry and pulse oximetry. And they looked at this this series of outcomes um, before and after. They sound, found the, the hospital case fatality rate. So this hospital case fatality rate went from 4.5% to to 3.9%, which was significant. Ward arrests went down almost 40%. Ward deaths down 25%. And ICU admissions also went down 7%. Um, Even though ICU admissions went down, high-risk ICU admissions went up. So more sicker patients were able to get into the ICU. And despite that, mortality didn't change and ICU occupancy didn't change. So I I think those last three or four bullet points there speak to... um, when you open up an IMC, you are able to improve access to ICU care um, uh, for patients that need it. And if you think back to that Robert study where admitting immediately was associated with a survival benefit, um, they seem to have affected that here. Now, going the other direction, um, the effect of closing an IMC, um, there, there, I forget where this was, but um, they had an ICU that was only seven beds and they increased it to nine beds. And at the same time, they closed um, their IMC and they looked at outcomes in the nine months before and after. And so what you see after they closed the IMC, now they have more non-emergent admissions to the ICU. The Apache score goes down, less sick patients. Um, TIS is um, therapeutic injury severity score, I think. And, and what that is, is a metric that um, is is supposed to characterize nursing workload. Um, it, it's a little bit problematic, and I'll touch on that at the end. But um, what you need to know for this slide is that the, the nursing workload at admission um, was less intense after closure. Um, ICU length of stay was less, hospital length of stay less, mortality less. So a lot of things sort of lining up with, yeah, we, we got rid of RMC, and now, now we're getting those less sick patients back into um, the ICU. And I'm not sure it's this study, but there was a similar study. And in response to them realizing they were now filling their ICU with less sick patients again, who maybe didn't need it, they reopened an IMC. Um, This level of care is is prevalent. So 
um, this publication by Michael Joding, who's done a lot with, um, I think, predictive analytics for ARDS. He's up at University of Michigan. Um, they looked at IMC billing, the increase in IMC billing between 1996 and 2010. You can see it went up from 28% to 60%. So a lot of places are now um, billing for IMC level of care. That doesn't necessarily mean they have an IMC unit, um, but they have an IMC level of care. Um, and then a study by Capuzzo, um, we'll talk about that in a few slides in more detail, but in terms of prevalence, this was a study looking at ICU outcome, ICU patient outcomes in centers with and without IMCs. And of 167 ICUs in 17 countries, 84% of those in Europe had IMCs associated with them. So, so this is a level of care that's quite prevalent. Um, so do we think IMCUs help the ICU population? This is the, the Capuzzo study again. And what they did was they collected um, four weeks of data on uh, patients admitted to this almost 170 ICUs. Um, 140 of those ICUs were associated with one administratively distinct IMC level of care. So they had access to that. Um, and then they, they look at these different metrics. So in terms of numbers of admissions, based on the prevalence of IMC, ma the majority of the patients um, were in ICUs with access to an IMCU. Um, the non-surgical admissions were more common in ICUs that had access to an IMCU. So, so suggestion there that maybe a lot of the ICU volume um, in the absence of an IMCU is, is really for close monitoring. And if there was an IMC accessible, people might agree to use that. The SAP score um, certainly lower uh, in ICUs that did not have access to an IMCU. Um, <clears throat> and then mortality was also lower, length of stay lower. Um, so it sort of just describes some differences in their population. They did a um, multivariable model um, to look at any associations with hospital mortality, and they pre-selected some metrics that they thought would um, be important in the analysis. And when they do that, um, there's a uh, protective effect of access to an IMCU with a odds ratio for mortality of 0.63, which was significant. The other things here that are also significant in predicting mortality are things you would anticipate. So unplanned admissions, um, the sicker you are, the more likely you are to die. And then those folks who you know don't get better quickly and are in the ICU for, for many days or in the hospital for many days before they get to the ICU, those are also more likely the people who who are less likely to to recover. So <clears throat> this is a little bit, um, at least for me, when I think through this, a little bit mind bending um, to think about how is it that the presence of an IMCU um, improves outcomes for the population of patients that are in the ICU. And what these authors suggest, um, if you look at the, I don't know if you can see my mouse here, but the, the length of stay in the ICU for, for folks without an ICU is lower. Um, and we talked about how um, the severity um, of patients when there's not access to an IMCU may be lower. So their, their thought here is that um, we end up with a churn problem. We end up with a lot of admissions, short stays for patients who um, maybe just need to be closely monitored. Um, and there's a lot of work with each admission and each discharge. So you, you especially at the nursing level, um, Think about a patient with, um, think about that um, patient with diarrhea and acidosis who comes in. That patient with volume repletion and bicarbonate is going to get better. That's very predictable. Um, so bringing that patient in, going through all the get to know you, all the family meetings and everything for a nurse to manage that patient who will then turn around and go out, that, that absorbs a lot of time when that nurse might be able to apply uh, his or her um, 
sort of intellectual horsepower uh, and physical horsepower to the care of more critically ill patients. So, you know, take that explanation for, you know, how you will, but um, that that's how the authors tried to sort of argue that uh, access to IMC may may improve the outcomes of ICU patients. Um, this is a, another, this is Hannah Wunsch um, working with uh, the UK group, done a bunch of work with them, and they were looking at outcomes of patients um, who are transitioning um, from ICU care to ward level care. And um, they sort of, they, they took the population and they, they, they sort of made a statement. They said, if you're in an ICU um, and you're transitioned from an ICU level of care to a ward, you almost by definition have to pass through a level of care that is intermediate care. So whether you've formally got a geographically distinct level of care or an administratively distinct level of care, you've got intermediate care intuition. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to refer to these as integrated IMC or geographically distinct IMC. Um, they, they don't really provide a lot of detail about how intermediate care itself is organized. Um, I, the, the implication is that it, it's sort of a continuum within the ICU on an integrated model. And so here, here are the uh, uh, the descriptors of this population. So um, again, uh, a lot of patients in integrated um, models, um, about 15,000 in the geographically distinct models. Um, I, I did the, the t-test on this today to see what the what the mortality difference was. And if you just do that, it's, it's significant. But in an adjusted analysis, it was not significant, adjusting for severity of illness um, and other things that would uh, tend to, to modify uh, mortality. No difference in, in, in admission, Apache 2 score, that's not necessarily discharge uh, severity of illness. Um, duration of ICU stay. <clears throat> now, duration of ICU stay in this analysis, you'll see that it's higher in folks that um, are in the geographically, have access to a geographically distinct. And in this population, these are patients that went from the ICU and either stayed in the ICU for their intermediate care or went to the geographically distinct. But for duration of intensive care, they're adding those two components together. So for the integrated model, it's easy. I, I was admitted to the ICU unit. I was discharged to the floor, average of six days. Um, in the geographically distinct, I was admitted to the ICU. I was transferred to the IMCU and combined those uh, admissions were seven days. So longer duration of ICU care, uh, longer duration of hospitalization, um, an increase in the proportion of discharges at night, um, uh, and more readmissions to the to, to intensive care, meaning read, readmissions back to the intensive care unit um, after after discharge um, from the ICU. Um, delays in discharge um, to ICU uh, to to the to the ward. Um, those were or actually delays and discharge out of the ICU, um, that went down dramatically. And um, the way they characterize a delay in the UK, they've got different levels of care, level zero, level one, level two, level three. Level three is your legit ICU patient. Um, level two would fit with intermediate care. Level one and level zero are basically patients who can generally do okay on the ward. Um, so once a patient was classified as level one, two, they started to count days um, of delay in the ICU. Um, what about the IMCU patients themselves? So this is a um, study from uh, the Kaiser uh, network out in California. Um, and they're looking for risk risk factors for unplanned transfer to the ICU among almost 180,000 admissions to 13 community hospitals. All of these hospitals had access to an intermediate care. So there's they, they excluded hospitals that did not have intermediate care. And of those 180,000, about 4,200 had an unplanned um, transfer to the ICU within 
24 hours of admission from the ED. Um, the diagnoses that were most likely in that population, these are not surprising, but pneumonia and COPD, so respiratory insufficiency, those are people who make their way to the ICU, myocardial infarction and sepsis, and other factors that predispose them to, to an unplanned ICU transfer were comorbidities, um, acute physiology score, meaning Apache, and if they were admitted overnight. Um, again, when they did it a when this group did an adjusted analysis, they found that the presence of an IMCU was protective against ICU admissions. So having that level of care was able, they, they were able to avoid um, some patients going to the ICU. There was no overall mortality benefit. Um, in the UK, going back to the UK, this is a, sort of an epidemiology uh, of admissions kind of paper. They had 11 standalone IMCU that they identified. They got data over the course of three years, um, and that was over 9,000 IMCU admissions. They looked at case mix, they looked at transitions in care, and they looked at uh, mortality. So this figure here is just to, again, demonstrate that there is a physical place where the ICU was, there is another, another administratively geographically distinct place for intermediate care, and, and then similar for the ward. Um, in that population, 60% of admissions to the IMC were non-surgical. And where did they come from? Uh, 22% came from the ICU, form of a downgrade. 20% were floor upgrade. And 40% came from the PACU. Where did they go? Um, of those admitted, 9% end up going to the ICU. 81% um, go to the floor. Um, median length of stay, 1.8 days. And mortality in the IMC is about 5%. And hospital mortality for the population is 15%. If you look at that subgroup who fails on the IMC and goes to the ICU, their mortality is high at 44%. Um, again, different than what is typical in the United States, their nurse-to-patient ratio is 1 to 2. And the majority of their IMCs are staffed by intensivists. And it was not clear from the manuscript uh, whether these are open provider staffing models or closed provider staffing models. Um, so this is... Uh, some data from our IMC, um, and we've we've actually reorganized um, our unit. Can talk a little bit about that if we have time. Um, but these data come from an era before COVID, sort of ending with COVID, where we had an open unit with um, up to ten different medical teams could admit to that, um, staffed by non-intensivists, so all hospitalists or uh, chief residents staffing these patients, some subspecialty attendings um, attending on these patients, nurse to patient ratio of one to three, and it's all medical patients, all non-surgical. Um, here's our, our descriptors. So our median length of stay is 2.2 2. 2 days. Only 7% of the admissions to RIMC come from the ICU. Over half come from the ED. And so you know, at some point, um, at some times when I talk about intermediate care with people, they're saying, oh, that's a step down. Um, you know, that's great. Let's have a place to get people out of the ICU more quickly. That's not how it's being used here. It's a it's a place where most, you know, most patients are coming out of the ED and a lot of patients are coming from the floor. Um, where do they go? 17% go to the ICU, 64% go back to the floor. Our IMC mortality um, is only 2%. Uh, and the hospital mortality for this population is about 8%. And for that subgroup that goes back to the ICU, that 17% of IMC admissions that go to the ICU um, and get upgraded to the ICU, it's 20, 27% mortality. Dave, um, yeah. can I ask you a quick question? Yeah, sure. Okay. You may comment on this later. And if so, just ignore it for now. But I always caution our fellows who do the triage here at Maryland about taking patients um, 
that I worry are sort of escalating care and admitting them into our IMC. So for example, a patient who's admitted on two liters nasal cannula, and then a couple hours later is on six liters and then on rebreather, because I feel like their trajectory is sort of not stable as the patient you described who came in acidemic and with a BUN that was a hundred and something, where maybe that was a a predictable trajectory. And so I guess my question is, is, you know, is there any data on whether we should be using the IMC as a step down or a step up and how the mortality really is different between the two uses of maybe the same exact geographic facility with the same exact training? Um, you know, how does it change? So I don't think those uh, studies have been done. They haven't been done to my, to my knowledge. Um, it's, um, people have talked about, let's, let's take people with similar Apache scores in the IMC, ICU on admission, see how they do. But there's, you know, there's confounding by indication there. Um, there's the, you know, the, the, the person at the bedside who makes a judgment call to put somebody in the ICU that is very difficult to control for. But I, I absolutely agree with what you're saying. So this, this table is sort of breaking up our population into four different pathways. These are the 7% of patients that are admitted to the IMC and end up in the ICU within 24 hours. Um, and I, I, you know, I, I think 24 hours is a reasonable cut point. If somebody tells me, I, I, you know, I'm looking at this patient and I've got the tool that will guarantee they're going to, you know, I can say with confidence they're going to be in the ICU within 24 hours. I probably will put them. Um, if we get longer than that, I start to wonder if it's making as much sense. Um, but I agree with you. The second case that I presented, you know, that person is getting piled on with fluid over and over again. Um, clearly, their trajectory was not obvious. Uh, well, I mean, it probably was to you, but um, that patient was labeled as fluid responsive every time they got a bolus and their blood pressure got better. Um, what they probably needed after the first few liters of fluid was to be put on vasopressor and go to the ICU rather than getting sort of loaded with, I think we had one patient that was, you know, got 12 liters of fluid. People kept thinking this is fluid responsive, but with each episode of hypotension, they're getting endor. So yeah, I, you know, the, the acidosis case I presented, DKA, that's a case that, you know, I think we know how that goes. We know how to treat it. Hypertensive urgency, you know, the, the patient who didn't get dialysis, his volume overload is a little hypoxic, is on BiPAP, but we've got a catheter, we're getting ready to dialyze them. We know how that's going to go. Um, it's it, that Those patients, I think, are, are probably, from a trajectory point of view, you also have to think about you know, the touch points for the nursing staff um, and how many times they're going to need to go into the room in an hour. Um, those are the things that I'm thinking about when I'm I'm deciding between ICU and IMC. And it's, a, you know, I think triage is something people have thought a lot about. There's not sort of a, you know, a, 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 a holy grail of how to triage um, perfectly. Um, you can get that right every time. Um, but when I'm teaching people about triage, I'm, I'm thinking, you know, you, you, you should pretty well be able to see how this is going to go before you put them at some lower level of care. Um, on this slide, in addition to what you, you pointed out, I wanted to just point out um, these two things. And, and this is perhaps the Hopkins experience, but you know we're getting a lot of admissions this level of care that never go to the eye. Um, and they're not just staying there for half a day. They're staying there for a few days. So I, I, I feel like this is a level of care that, that we need and, and it's doing something important in our workflow. Um, it's not it's not just a, a quick transition. Um, what do we know about organization of IMCU? And I'll I'll just say this is this is uh, the more I think of see the data from this, I realize that there's a lot we need to do to better understand this level of care. Um, the, the first point is that organization matters. So um, this was you know pretty trendy. Uh, uh, Peter Prenovost did a big study showing that um, outcomes are better if you staff ICUs with intensivists. Um, 
you know, this systematic review with combination of observational studies and randomized controlled trials um, show that if we have high intensity staffing, um, outcomes are better, mortality, both for hospital, ICU, and length of stay. That's just looking at one feature of organization, meaning how you staff. But whether you've got an open or a closed staffing model, you know, think about a nurse trying to identify in our old model of intermediate care, where we had an open unit with potentially 10 teams admitting, you know, which, which, which team is responsible for a given patient, which doctor on that team, which doctor in which part of the call site. That's different than walking down the hall and saying, hey, the guy in bed one attention. Like there's a lot of extra work that goes, goes in with that. So I think that's one sort of structural thing, open versus closed. And then, you know, I probably was biased about this before, about the concept of integrating intermediate care with the ICU. Um, but there is a appeal to that in that if I decide this person can now be classified as intermediate care, I don't have to do all that admission discharge work. I can just adjust the nursing um, staffing and the same team can take care of the patient. Um, and I think there's some efficiencies with that. It may mean that we need more than one ICU um, or we can do more a broader range of things, but um, I'm getting interested in how that sort of modeling can can affect um, patient outcomes. Um, so I'm just bringing up this, this uh, issue of benchmarking um, of intermediate care in, in the United States. And, and I'll tell you some results of a survey we did. It is ironic that the concept of benchmarking was created by the Kodak Film Company, which you may uh, know is, is not doing so well anymore. But um, maybe it was Xerox. I think it was Xerox. Um, but benchmarking is defining a process that requires assessment and the process in this, this context is intermediate care, gathering data that adequately describes um, organization and performance. So what I've worked to do is describe what's happening in the country now in terms of performance. That's one of the things we discovered is people don't know. They don't know how well they're doing with intermediate care. They're kind of just doing. Um, and then compare your performance to peer uh, uh, sites, um, see what's working well, um, and then uh, and then focus in on on patient outcomes and and adopt the 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 models that are affiliated or associated with with better patient outcomes. Um, so we uh, did this thirteen state um, survey, um, and I think we've got you guys in it. I didn't pull out your specific data. These these data were are, are, are held up a little bit. We collected them before COVID, and then. Like you, we've all been busy with other things, so writing writing it up now. Um, but I had a I had a visiting student from India who, uh, bless her heart, um, called 650 hospitals in 13 states to figure out which ones had an intermediate level of care, and found that most of them did, um, 440. Um, and then we sent them a fairly long survey, it's uh, 214 items, and it talked about um, structure of the hospital, academic, urban, um, some questions about how do you staff your unit? Is it open closed? is um, intensivist or non-intensivist staff. Um, and then we get real granular about services provided. Do you do vasopressors or not? Do you do antiarrhythmic infusions or not? If so, which ones? Um, as you can imagine, a survey that long, we, we had to follow up with people quite a bit to get them to, to finish it. We had a, at the end of the data collection period, we, we had a, about a 20% response rate. And here's some of the results. So just describing the institutions, excuse me, um, 74% private nonprofit, um, 60% urban. Um, the majority were academic institutions with medical and uh, surgical residency training programs and additional critical care training. And you, you can see in the bottom right there is sort of the general range of size. So we, we actually had a nice mix of big academic centers and um, smaller community centers as well. I think the smallest hospital we had, something that's in rural Alabama, I think, that had... Um, 
or North Carolina um, that had um, something like 30 beds. Very, and they had four ICU beds, two IMC beds, and then ward level care. Um, how do people do the geography? Um, so 40, 43% have that standalone IMCU. 4% are integrating in some way with the ICU. Um, I should say 4 to 10% because some of them are using the, the um, patchwork design there I've tried to put in is is meant to indicate flex beds, beds that flex back and forth between IMC and ICU, whereas in the middle on the top, that's those are dedicated beds for IMC. And if you actually got sick, you'd have to move to a different part of the ICU. Um, but the most common was the dedicated IMCU. Um, the majority are open. So uh, you know, the unit is there with the nursing staff and the whatever provider needs it can generally get access to it. Um, the majority of the attending of record is a non-intensivist and only 5% require a critical care consult. Um, 23% do require that even if an intensivist is not involved in the care, that, that the intensivist approves the bed. And most of them have documented admission guidelines. But I, as you all probably know, guidelines are pretty, not the most helpful things at times. You can write something down, but it often doesn't really speak to the patient in front of you. Um, monitoring and treatment that they did. So almost all, not almost all, so only 71% do continuous pulse Symmetry is a little surprise to me. Um, below the gray bar there, you'll see that uh, almost all of them do do continuous cardiac telemetry. 73% do new BiPAPs. So some places, before I had this data, I would say, well, we'll start BiPAP in the ICU, and um, then we'll downgrade to IMC once somebody's stable. But most places will take new BiPAP on the IMC level of care. And 60% will do mechanical ventilation through a trach. I, there there was one site that said they do mechanical, mechanical ventilation through an intratracheal tube. Um, <clears throat> I was not convinced by that, um, but the data is are what they are. Um, you can see a quarter do A-lines, 40% or so do vasopressor. Um, interestingly, more than that do inotrope. Um, continuous antirrhythmics were pretty common. Uh, what about hospital mortality? What are the outcomes? How do people do with these different models? Well, um, what what came through is most places don't have access to this information. Um, they're not tracking. Um, only 16 sites answered the question, and the median uh, mortality was was 20 was 2.2 percent, um, with a range of of one to four. So not high mortality. That's that's mortality on the unit as opposed to during the hospitalization. So to better understand this, we need to have some sort of network that will sort of commit to collecting data. And um, my experience collecting these data say that. The motivation to do that is not yet quite there unless we can get some administrative uh, tools going. Um, what do we need to go forward to whatever outcomes we get? We're going to want to um, adjust outcomes for severity of illness. Um, all the prediction, you know, the Apache, the SAPs, the MPM tools that we use to adjust critical care outcomes, those are all developed for critical care. Um, I did a, an, an assessment using our data um, of how well the different tools work. And the one that um, fell out as working reasonably well was the SAPS-2. Um, and this turned out to work pretty well based on an area under the receiver operating characteristic and a standardized mortality ratio. Um, in a French, very small French IMC back in the 90s, a Spanish IMC in 2012, and then in our IM in the United States um, uh, a few years ago. So again, all single site studies, but uh, compared to other metrics, um, this seems to be the one that, that I would use at this time to adjust intermediate care data. Um, and then this is sort of getting towards the end here, but I've been getting more interested in this because uh, there's such heterogeneity in how these units are staffed and organized, the types of patients they take, what is very consistent, even within the Hopkins system. So I have a fellow who's going to start working on this, and, and we found that there are 
14 to I think it, I think the final count was 14 intermediate levels of care across the five hospital Hopkins health system. So that's suburban, Sibley. Actually, Sibley doesn't have one. Suburban, um, Bayview, Hopkins Hospital, and Howard County. 14 different places where somebody is saying this patient is getting an intermediate level of care. Um, in every one of those locations, the nurse-to-patient ratio is one to three. And I know that my IMC with all medical patients um, with great diversity uh, in their medical problem, those nurses are working harder than the nurses in the cardiac post-cath IMC, where people are getting telemetry and generally are on pathway. And yet the staffing ratio is the same. So I think as we calibrate and titrate resources to this level of care, we, we really need to have a a better understanding of the nursing workload, the touch points that the nurse has to um, deal with when they're managing a patient. So although DK is a, a, a case with good trajectory, we know how that's going to go. And it's always done very well in our care unit. Once you get over three or four DKs on the unit at the same time, it, it starts to get a little tasky and busy and the nurses have trouble keeping up. So when we get in that situation, the, the fourth one will go up to the ICU. Um, measuring nursing workload um, is not an easy thing to do. It's pretty data intensive venture. The TIS-28, the nine equivalents of I think, nursing manpower, nursing activity scale, these are, there's a lot of patient oriented data elements here that speak to severity of illness and they don't capture all the things that the nurses do that, um, you know, don't show up in the EMR. So the, you know, in the ICU, uh, very often we don't have a lot of conversations with patients um, or families for that matter. We work on it, but, but certainly we have a lot of sick patients who don't have families. In the IMCU, patients tend to be talking. They have questions, they have needs, they have a, an ability to press the call bell. Um, our IMC, there's a big churn. There's lots of turnover, admissions and discharges. So um, I, I think we really need to dial into the nursing workload and use that to calibrate um, and, and rethink which which patients are appropriate for, for that level of care. And, and not so much that, but how, how we staff it. It may be just that we need to adjust the staffing ratio or add resources that support the nurses in the work that they do. Um, all right. So we, we kind of already divulged what the outcomes were here. The guy with diarrhea did really well. And the person with sepsis, not surprisingly, when they got to the floor or when they left the ED to go to the floor, they shut off the fluids. They showed up with a blood pressure of 70 over 40. And the nurses were unhappy with that, understandably, as was the medical team and the patient went right up to the ICU. Um, so conclusions and next steps. I, you know, I think this level of care is, is certainly here to stay. It's growing over the last 20 years. Um, I think in, in many scenarios, it is successful in unloading the ICU. Uh, the vast majority of patients admitted to this level of care. So in our environment, never require the ICU. Um, but, but the standards for this level of care really, I, I don't think have been effectively established. SECM published guidelines for IMCU admission. The last time they did that was in 1998. Um, and they're very nonspecific. Um, I, I don't know if that was deliberate or not, but but um, very nonspecific. So I think we need data-driven guidelines, hard to get data-driven guidelines till we have a data flow that allows us to start analyzing this level of care better, um, comparing patient outcomes with different organizational models, um, staffing models, physical models, nursing staffing models. Um, we talked about, you know, having a way to, to adjust outcomes using a severity of illness metric. SAPS2 seems to work pretty well. Um, and then a valid metric for nursing workload which um, th these things exist. And uh, uh, I think if we can get more people thinking about this level of care, maybe we can start start making some progress. Um, these are my munchkins and I'm happy to take any questions that people have.